The year is 1959. Les garçons volent une machine The film, 400 Blows. everybody and welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i am paul Shear, and this is unspooled the podcast where we are currently hard at work at creating the 100 best movie list as judged by ourselves and you to eventually be blasted into outer space it's a job that we are both up for nasa is behind this and we are ready to go uh amy this is our first foray into foreign films our list is going to include foreign films, which is, a, I think, an important factor. We can't just be nationalistic about the 100 best films. we got to open it up to the world. I agree. Hard agree. Cinema is a conversation. Oh, I like that. Uh, and you'll continue to see us uh, explore different countries and filmmakers from those countries as the show goes on. Uh, and we want you to continue to check in with us because... Your voice plays a large part in this show. How? Well, I'll tell you. You are going to vote on our last film in this miniseries. We have a poll going right now for your favorite high school film that you want us to talk about in our final episode of this miniseries. Get those votes in on our Facebook group. Uh, and also, stay tuned because Amy and I are launching a brand new unspooled way to chat. If you're not on Facebook, if you're not on Twitter, if you're not on Instagram, you can get involved in the conversation. Stay tuned for that. We'll get those details out to you uh, very shortly. But um, I'm very excited to see what you all pick. Let's leave that on the table for now. Amy, I'm so excited to talk about this film. Uh, it's available on HBO Max for free if you have HBO Max. Uh, and I think most of you do if you subscribe to HBO because it's part of the package. Uh, and I, I, I love it. I'm excited to get into it. Is this, you know, what's your connection to this film like have you seen it a bunch not a bunch a bunch a bunch but i have seen it and as a critic i'm always interested when a critic makes a movie Ooh, yeah all right well amy are you ready to Let's pull it. the year is 1959 alaska becomes the 49th state and hawaii follows at 50 the dalai lama and tens of thousands of tibetans flee to india and remain in exile to this day Fidel Castro comes to power in Cuba. Frank Lloyd Wright completes his design of the Guggenheim Museum in New York City. Mattel launches the Barbie doll. Consumers are listening to The Rat Pack, Doris Day, Ella Fitzgerald, and they're watching Bonanza and the Twilight Zone on their TVs. This year's notable films are Ben-Hur, North by Northwest, Some Like It Hot, and today's subject, The 400 Blows. Um, since this film is in French, We'll be playing clips that are in French. So um, here's just a little taste of a scene with a 12-year-old boy uh, around the dinner table with his parents. À propos, dit, ça me fait penser que j'ai pas retrouvé mon guide Michelin, moi. Et forcément, il y en a un de vous qui a mis la main dessus. Oh, tu commences à nous courir avec ton Michelin, tu sais. J'aime pas les mystères, moi. Tiens, t'as encore laissé quelque chose sur le feu. Moi Ah, non, j'en suis sûr. Qu'est-ce qu'il lui prend Oh, c'est le bouquet Mais il est allé au lieu de crier Oh Mais au lieu de crier, il va chercher de l'eau oh. oh. 400 Blows. It is the story of 12-year-old 
Antoine, who is a boy who is abandoned by his self-centered parents and oppressed by a school system that rewards obedience and authoritarianism over nurturing his innate kindness and creativity. You know, Antoine is played by Jean-Pierre Lyot, and he's starting from this very first scene where he winds up taking the blame for a nudie calendar that's passed around his boys' school. He becomes adrift and punished and alone with nothing but a best friend and his own determination to be free. 400 Blows is the semi-autobiographical story of the director, Francois Truffaut. This is his debut, and he becomes one of the major voices championing the auteur theory. Uh, 400 Blows premieres at Cannes on May 4th, 1959. So if you take that and rewind it back, the big song of that weekend was Come Softly to Me by the Fleetwoods, a gentle hit partially recorded in the Fleetwoods' own bedroom. I would say that that fits Truffaut's indie vibe, and perhaps that is why Come Softly to Me is on the soundtrack to one of America's best-known boyish coming-of-age movies, Stand By Me. Lovely, lovely song for a film that is absolutely beautiful, also lovely in its own way, and also, I would say, pretty unsparing in the way adults treat children. Yeah, Amy, this movie really affected me in a real way, and I didn't know what to expect. I've never seen this film before, and I wanted uh, to say at the top of this episode, I am going to allow myself to be incredibly vulnerable and ask you a couple questions, because this is all kind of new to me. I don't know much about Truffaut. I don't know much about French New Wave. And I want to, you know, talk to you about it. And instead of me researching it, I figured I could have this conversation and not pretend to be smart. So I'm going to tell you <laughs> right off the bat, talk to me about French New Wave. I know this is, I guess, the beginning of French New Wave, but what what does that even mean? Yeah. Well, to talk about French New Wave, it's really important to talk about Truffaut himself. And you know, if you've seen The Foreigner Blows, you can kind of know a lot about Truffaut. He grew up like this. He grew up with a mother who wasn't um, that nice to him, sent him away a lot. He spent most of his childhood with, grand with his grandmother until his grandmother died. His father that he was raised with wasn't his real father. He was always skipping school and being expelled. He was kind of a ne'er-do-well, except what happens to Truffaut is that he goes AWOL from the military once he's enlisted, and he winds up befriending a man named Andre Bazin. And Bazin becomes one of the people who founds Kaida Cinema. And Bazan saw this kid who always wanted to skip school, didn't want to do anything with his life but watch movies, and said, you should be a film critic. And so when he's 20 years old, Truffaut becomes a film critic. And right away, he gets very famous for an article that today we might call kind of a troll. He basically wrote this gigantic, angry piece all about how all of the French filmmakers at that time were lazy and unoriginal about how nothing they did was pushing the medium forward. You know, he, uh, Truffaut himself, was a big champion of our American directors that we like a lot, of Hitchcock, of Hawks. He's one of the people who winds up really elevating Hitchcock abroad, and then we start respecting him more back here at home. In America, you call this man Hitch. In France, we call him Monsieur Hitchcock. You respect him because he shoots scenes of love as if they were sense of murder. We respect him because he shoots scenes of murder like a sense of love. <laughs> anyway, 
It is the same man we are talking about, the same man and the same artist. When I began to direct films, I thought Monsieur Hitchcock was fantastic, maybe because he weighed more than 200 pounds. <laughs> Therefore, I tried to eat more and more. I gained 20 pounds, but it obviously didn't work. I knew I had to find another way to understand the proportions of his genius. So I asked Monsieur Hitchcock to give me an interview of 50 hours and to reveal all his secrets. The result was a book. Actually, it was like a cookbook full of recipes for making films. But the great secret of Monsieur Hitchcock is a secret of cinema itself. He's like, our films don't do anything. They're not about anything. They're so weak. And so he becomes kind of this enfant terrible, this like mean, nasty, young critic who just was people thought was kind of cruel. And so what happens as he's building up his career and criticizing the French films that he thought were so stuffy and old, you know, one of his nicknames, by the way, is the grave digger of French cinema, is in 1958, he becomes the only French critic that Cannes does not invite to the festival. They're like, wow. we are done with you. You are such an annoying little snot. We're sick of your shit. We're making the real films over here, like our big kind of boring, grandiose, blah, 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 blahs. We don't want your kind. And so he's complaining at home to his wife and um, his wife's father, who was a uh, producer. And his wife's father's finally like, you know what? If you think you can make a film, make a film. And so he wow. makes 400 Blows. And so 400 Blows to him was this rebuke of everything stuffy that was happening in French cinema. And you have to love this kind of like clapback evil irony of Truffaut being like, you banned me from Cannes in 58. Well, in 1959... I'm going to be back with the film and I'm going to win Best Director. And that is exactly what happened. The effect that he had on cinema is so apparent to me now. I mean, obviously, I saw it backwards. Like, I've seen all the films that he has inspired. And now I'm like, oh, clearly his his fingerprint is on so much or this film's fingerprint is on so much. I mean, so this style is new wave. Is that what you're kind of saying here? Like this this you know, realism or this grounded grittiness? Is that kind of what they mean? Yeah, that coupled with this indie aesthetic that comes out of limitations. You know, while everybody ha in France who's working within the system has more money to do things like have color film and have tripods and have things set up and have dollies, Truffaut doesn't have that. You know, so that's why the film is in black and white. It's not just stylistic to him. It's black and white and handheld just because he didn't have the money for color and for real camera equipment. He's not shooting in sets. You know, he can't afford a set anyways. They don't have a studio. So he's going into the real streets. He's going into real classrooms. He's having real people do small roles in the back of his film. You know, he, he has a couple actors who like him or who were aware and nice to him because he had reviewed some of their films good. And they do him a favor. They show up for a minute, like the woman walking the dog, you know, in the scene where he's right. the walking dog and a man chases off. That was Jean Moreau, you know, like a fairly big star at the time. So she was doing him a solid by showing him up. Oh, my gosh. Well, I also know that he has a lot of like famous directors in here as well, like Jean-Luc Godard and uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo. They're like voices in some of the scenes. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of these like little cameos and they're not even large parts. I mean, Truffaut himself is in the film. He rides next to the boy and I don't know what they call it. Like, I know that I would call it like a Gravitron, you know, like this thing where you stick to the side of the wall. Um, but I love that he picked the most torturous scene to probably... <laughs> 
be in. Like, <laughs> like watching that made me nauseous. I love the way they shot that. Um, I think it looks fun, man. I love that stuff. Oh, I mean, as a kid, the, I was all about the Gravitron. Get me in there. <laughs> I want to go upside down. I want the change to fly out of my pockets. But, um, <laughs> but, but even that Gravitron scene, you know, I'm not the person who came up with this idea, but I love this idea, so I'm going to share it. You know, the Gravitron itself is within that within that spinning wheel. You become capable of breaking all sorts of rules of gravity. You know, Antoine mm-hmm. starts to climb upside down. All the rules are off. You know, adults are acting like children and laughing. And that is what this film was supposed to do. You know, it was like, I'm just, I am here to break the rules of how you think a film is supposed to look. I'm here to remind you of what freshness is like. Something that doesn't feel as mechanical and mind-numbing as the school that Antoine is skipping. It feels throughout incredibly naturalistic. Right. I think the schoolroom mm-hmm. scenes probably feel the most um, directed to a certain degree. And then the rest of the film, it just feels like he's capturing these boys at play and in a relaxed setting. I've never seen such good acting from kids that didn't feel uh, aware at all. Like it feels truly like he's he is getting them in their natural state. These are the way kids are, what they think and how they act when they don't think anyone else is watching. And, you know, I, I did the research after I watched the film, but so much so that one of the most pivotal scenes in the whole film when he's being interrogated is taken from this boy's audition scene when he wasn't, you know, when his guard was completely down when they were just having this kind of conversation together. He took that scene, he took that naturalistic thing and I was, I mean, it makes so much sense because when he does get asked, like, have you had sex with a girl? Like the way his face kind of gets flustered and blushes, it just feels so natural. And, and I think that that's what kept me leaning into this film. And just, I I don't know, there's something about it. I, I just feel like it. it's not often captured, even though it's often imitated. No, you're right. I mean, these little boys, these I mean, I'm I'm just going to say boys because there are no really young girls in this movie. Yeah. These young boys are so striking, aren't they? The way mm-hmm. they walk around after school in their their jackets and their little briefcases. They you really get the sense that these are boys trying to be men. But never, not right. really quite able to do it, you know, not well, quite able to do it. But you see yes, in the way the that they smoking, move. The smoking, yeah. the way they're like, like, I, like, to me growing up, and I'm sure, you know, I don't think this is just a a male perspective. I, I mean, do, well, let me ask, do you, do you feel like that connection, like, of this child's journey, you, can you connect to that as a woman? Because uh, I felt very much like this felt like my childhood growing up. Like I felt like I got like, oh, I wanted to smoke cigarettes. I wanted to do this thing. I, <laughs> you know, I felt like I was more complex. You know, like I don't know, like that palling around and stealing stuff. Like, I like those are things that I can really identify with. Did you feel that connection to this character as well, or no? Uh, was it more just watching it? Not exactly in the same way. Like I think I connected with his boredom with school and with his frustration with his parents. I connected with a lot of his emotions, but not necessarily his life. Mm-hmm. I, although I, I do, I really do remember that feeling of kind of feeling like you were in dress up, like bet- between two worlds. Do you remember mm. where you were? Oh gosh, I was about to quote Britney Spears. I'm not a girl. Please. Not yet. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's what this show needs. Yeah. 
see the young boy in the film, he quotes Balzac, and we will quote Britney Spears. That's our uh, poet laureate. She she is the Balzac of our days. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I I relate a lot to his restlessness. I think is what I'm saying, and also this feeling of like nothing is fair, and I'm going to yeah. try to make the best of it. But if nothing is fair, then it's okay for me to break some of the rules. I mean, what I really love about this kid is he's just so multidimensional. Like, yes, he he screws up and he lies and he's a little bit of a naughty trickster. And yet he has this good heart underneath it. And I feel like a lot of times when you see that, you know, contradiction in a film, those layers of like, oh, he's just a bad kid with a heart of gold. It feels phony. But I feel like Antoine, you just can you can cut him right down the middle and he feels like one holistic person, just capable of all of these different things. Well, I think when you're 12, you are that. You are experimenting and you're playing with these ideas of who you are. I thought there was a beautiful scene in the beginning uh, of him at his mother's table and playing dress up with her stuff, you know, which is interesting. Like, you know, not to say this film explore. I mean, this film definitely does explore sexuality. And I think it explores sexuality through the eyes of a 12 year old. Right. What they're hearing, how they're seeing things, you know, when he sees his mother having this affair, like there's so there is like um, a taboo nature to sexuality. So I loved that when he is alone, he is at her table and putting on her things. Just it, it not saying that it's that he is leaning in any way. It's just like, but just to touch those things, to feel those things. I, I don't know. There's a there's a a real curiosity there that I think is really interesting, too. It's it's like not sexualized sexuality, if that makes sense. No, it does. It does. It, and it it dovetails into how I feel like he just walks and sits even. Like you see his expressions and he feels like he's imitating an older man, you know, or, or moving yeah. like a grown up, you know, walking with authority in these things, you know. And, and the whole thing is a bit of a costume, you know, not, not that much different than curling his eyelashes. I mean, we... As children, I think, or at least I can say for myself, I wanted to grow up quick, right? I wanted to shave. I wanted to drive a car. <laughs> I wanted to do all those things because you feel so trapped, you know, with being under the thumb of your parents at a certain point. And I think 12 is probably the right age, you know, because as you get into high school, you start to get a little bit more freedom. But 12 is where you're you're starting to feel that that pull and um and what is right and what is wrong. And I love that he got into, you know, Balzac in this film because it's it also shows like when you find something that you feel like is maybe a little bit more adult and you're like, no, that's what I'm about. I'm this. I, and I loved like he captured all these moments. And, you know, you're saying it's autobiographical. I think it shows. I mean, you see it. You see that these are uniquely specific things to him. But. They're universal to, I think, most kids growing up. Yeah. I mean, it's autobiographical to the point that Truffaut really did steal a typewriter so he could buy movie tickets. Oh. Really, like, really the typewriter. Really, he knows when that when you see Antoine lugging that heavy thing around and wondering, like, what what is this albatross now that I have saddled myself to that I cannot sell? Yeah. Like, Truffaut oh. knows the feel of those keys and being like, what on earth is my problem? Yeah, I mean, if you want to see this kid, if you want to see Jean-Pierre Lode's audition, there's his audition is all over YouTube. And it's incredible. Like, oh, he yeah. He just shows up. 
basically like this kid. He's amazing. He has he's this great combination of like blustering and honest and cocky, you know, and self-defacing a little bit. Like he's like he just kind of brags like I'm not much of a thinker. And he talks about how he took a train 125 miles to this audition and he skipped school. And when the casting director points out that he's a little bit old, that he's 14, he just goes, I'm not that tall. You're not even, I'm not that tall. Like, I'm not that tall. Like, it's a challenge. Well, you know, there is something, I think it's perfectly cast. There is like um, a sadness and a street smartness with this kid. He's not completely innocent. What you said, you know, about if you cut him down the middle, he does kind of ride both sides. He's smarter than the room, but he's also young in the room. It's that perfect moment in life. And I, I think, I believe he's 14 when he's playing this part. 14 is about the right zone where you're a foot in teen and a foot in kid, right? It's like that that middle ground. Like right as you're going into high school, things start to change, but you still have all those instincts of being a little kid. By the way, we have to talk about his partner in crime here, you know, Renee, who's played by Patrick O'Fay. I love their relationship. I mean, honestly, the, that this film has such a core best friendship between these two guys. You, know, you almost keep expecting Renee to maybe betray him in some way. But no, Renee is there. Renee loves him. Renee d- can't do everything. Renee's wrong about stuff. Renee can be like, the newspaper is a safe place to sleep you know, until it's not. You know, and they can get into fights. And at the end of it, you do sense that Renee will be okay because he comes from a family with more money because he comes from a family that's rich enough to have like a giant house with a stuffed horse and so many cats. I just felt like I kept seeing more (laughs) and more cats. The more I looked at that, Oh, those, those, those stealth cats are one of the best things in this film. And yet, you know, the idea that Renee bikes all the way to try to visit him at his reform school and then gets sent away, which was a true story that happened. You know, his, that actually Truffaut's best friend was named Robert and they stayed best friends forever and so I love the idea that he pays homage to to friendship in this film in a, in a way that I found incredibly believable. I also kind of was obsessed with the locations. I know we couldn't afford sets, but that apartment, the way that their bodies barely fit in that space, you know, everyone's kind of, you know, it reminded me of, you know, Parties I went to in New York that were in like studio apartments, like the dumbest parties, you know, everyone's crowded into the kitchen. You have to really like map out 15 minutes if you want to go to the bathroom just to get to the bathroom, you know, like that kind of because the crowd is so deep and, <laughs> you know, hard to navigate through. But I, that that I remember room throwing one of those when I first moved to L.A. and I got a studio apartment. I was oh. like, everybody come over. And it was August and I was baking stuff in the oven and I was on the fourth floor of a walk up without air conditioning and nobody came to my house ever again, ever again after that. Oh, it was so it, miserable. I mean, you want it so bad, but you have no place to do it. I went to so many of those like studio or like one bedroom parties. It was the worst. Um, but there was nothing else to do. Um, I just love that apartment. And I'm sure that on some level there's a symbolic nature of why that apartment is so tight because I think each one of these characters is cramped in the life that they are in right now to a certain extent. I feel like I love the mother in this film. I mean, I I just think that she is doing so much and, you know, even though she doesn't share that much, you get so much from the way that she behaves in the space, the way she interacts with this man that she's with. And um, yeah, there's so much going on, but you basically have three people in this confined space that didn't really want to be together. And the only time they, they genuinely all seem happy 
is after they leave the movies, right? Like it's mm-hmm. the one thing that unites them is almost the escapism. You know, they're trapped in this world and that escapism brings them back and they're all enjoying it from different things. Like he's enjoying it from being like, not to say lecherous, but he's enjoying it really just based on the actress and she's enjoying it on a deeper level. Like they're, it, in a weird way, the movie allows them to show off who they are by what they like in it and how different they are based on what they saw. Does that make sense? Or is that like, am I going way too far with this? No, I mean, yeah. I I mean, there's so many dimensions to that, to the scene where they all go to the movies. Like it's great to see Antoine be a kid. Like that's almost the most kid he is, is when he's between his parents and he's excited to eat strawberry ice cream for the first time and he's glowing and you, and you see, I mean, it comes halfway through the film and you're so happy for him that he's having this night. It's great because when I was 12, I'd be like, I don't want to be around my parents. And he was just ecstatic to be there. And I feel like the film, you know, kind of, I don't know if it's a deliberate trick that it does in the audience, but your instinct, I think, really early on is to align with the father who's kind of like, oh, just deal with your mother. She's sweet. I'll make the eggs when she's, you know like stressed at work and working so hard when we know that she's having an affair. Uh, But then in this scene, you at least the dad's kind of crass. It is teaching him that women are just valued for their giant breasts and that his dad is not the greatest role model either. And I appreciate that because I think it's really easy for this film to become the, my mother is a cold person and she's the source of all problems movie. No, but I think his mother gets him more than his dad. And and I felt in the exact same trap that you did, or not that you fell in this trap, but you get connected to the dad in that first scene where he asks for like 10,000 francs, right? And his dad's like, well, if you're asking for 10, you really need five. But on that, you probably just need three. So I'll give you one. Like, you know, it was like this really, I was like, oh, this is a cool dad. He gets his kid and, you know, and he just seems like, he seems like the pal. And so quickly you realize like, oh, that's not what this kid needs. He needs something more akin to, what the mother provides at the end, not the end, but when she's kind of at his bedside and they're having this conversation, he needs a parent who's there and cares and can see him because these parents only really see him through how other people say he is. I don't think that they know him. Like they live with him, but he doesn't seem to be part of the the things that fuel them. And as a parent, I can't understand that. But as a kid, I can recognize that. Yeah. I mean, and and I think your point about the house is so smart. I mean, this is a house, by the way, that they were filming in and they were so broke while they were filming this movie that the power would shut off while they were trying to film it. But that the fact that the mother can't open the door and sneak into the house late from having an affair without tripping over her boy's bed. You know, she literally can't do the misbehavior she's doing without disrupting her boy. You know, well, from the I way mean, that the every, house is laid out. Everybody is getting caught in their misbehavior, right? Like everybody, like even what you said with the typewriter, like he steals the typewriter. It's so heavy. It It is literally the albatross. Like it's weighing him down. Like everybody's misbehavior is inconvenient to the life that they live, which is even, I mean, we should even talk about this. Like the idea of the title, the title makes no sense, right? 400 blows. Like, what does that even mean? I never understood that title. I I still don't understand it now. And then I did some research and basically what it's supposed to, it's a, I guess, universally known as being a terribly translated title. But the idea, if you know the title in French, is it's raising hell. 
right? That's like, that's kind of the idea behind it, like creating chaos or raising hell. Like that's, that's the intent of the title. Um, and that's what these people are kind of, they are raising, they, you know, in different ways, you know, like you see the kid definitely doing it in, in big ways, but you know, the mom is doing it too. Like they're, they're, they're all rebelling. And, and maybe there's a part of us that, uh, you know, that longs for that rebellion, no matter what, like, you know, like, if you have something good, you want to wreck it. You want to see, you want to try something different. Like there's that energy of youth, um, you know, at, 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 at all times. It's true. And I mean, I'll be honest. I do have like empathy for the mom regardless. Like you can tell 100%. at least that she got pregnant really young uh, and that the man who got her pregnant didn't stick around. And so she had to get married you know, in order to try to build any life for herself and her son at this moment. And so she marries this guy who's okay, but she's not happy on a deep level. You you can sense that she's still a really young woman wanting something for herself, you know, still feeling like she didn't get to grow up. I like that we have that little moment of her alone where she looks into the mirror after she sends him out to go buy flour and she, you know, kind of caresses her face and looks at herself in the mirror and checks to see that she is still a young, beautiful woman. You see this longing yeah. in her. I mean, don't you feel like she pops visually more than any other character in the film? Like, for lack of a better term, everyone else in the film seems like they're covered a little bit in soot. And she feels like she pops like in white and her hair. It's, there's something in her look that seems like purposefully brighter than anything else. So I, I do think that she's calling you in. I I, I love the mom. I, I I identify with the mom or I feel, uh, I don't know. I, maybe that's because I've, come from uh, a childhood that had like interesting parallels but i mean also like this idea of like what it's like and how hard it is to be a single parent and to make that choice to be a you know she can't get out of this i mean like she is trapped but she is also in a prime of her life too like so it's a real struggle like she's making the right choice for her life but not the right choice for herself which i guess you have to do when you are a parent yeah, that's a really interesting point about the way that she's costumed and the way that her hair is. Yeah, she does sort of walk through the scenes. I mean, I feel like this this movie has immediacy. It doesn't feel like it's taking place with, even though it is by a director reflecting on his life, it doesn't feel like a reflection. It feels very direct, like this is all happening right now to this kid. It feels almost documentary. And yet there is something in the way that she pops out of the frame that has that feel of, you're remembering what your mother was like, you know, when, it, you know, when like you see a film where like a character is just slightly overdressed or her lipstick is too red right. and it's almost, you feel like you're seeing her through the lens of somebody else in that scene. Yes. Yeah. There is something to that. And I, I think it's touching that even though he was really young with Truffaut himself, when he made this film, he's able to understand her. Even if, even if he doesn't ever have a scene where she's like, I lay out why I'm mad and why I'm upset. You know, she doesn't need that. I think you can put her together if you have any empathy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, even you though about, that scene at the end where she's like, you are the lowest of the low and I don't love you. And I wish oh, that her final scene is the coldest in the movie. Well, it's the fear that I think every child has. Right. If I mess up, will you stop loving me? If I make a mistake, will you stop loving me? And here the answer is yes. And for most people, I think the answer is no, I always will love you. I will always. And it really underscores how alone this 
boy is. Like, I mean, it's, oof, that really got me. And I also thought in a way, the reason why she's saying it is because she sees that it's an escape for her. Like this, if she can get rid of him, right? Or if she can write him off, she gets to be free. Um, which I'm not saying is a good thing, but I feel like that's part of the reason why she is like that. Like it allows her to like, you know, wipe her hands of him. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Like, but that, like that to me feels like the motivating factor for it. I don't think that she's that upset with him. I think that she sees a, an opportunity for escape, just like he sees an opportunity for escape at the very end of the film and, and breaks away from the pack and, and runs to the water. Like she's doing that you know, uh, two to a certain degree, like I can get out of all of this. I can, I can be done. I can, you know, I can be free from this life that I feel trapped by. Yeah. And, and you can see that she's trying to even lie to herself or convince herself that it's for the best for him. When she's asking, you know, the, the official, well, will he be by the sea? You know, will it be a lovely right. place where he can yeah. be by the sea? It's, it's like, basically it's like, like when you, you give up your dog. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. You're like, I'm going to send you to the farm. He's going to yeah. love the Oh, farm. he's going to love the so farm. Happy at the farm. Yeah, it's like it makes you feel better about the choice to give up. I mean, and and I don't, I'm not saying anyone but there is like it's a it's that choice to to make sure that you feel like, "Well, I did the right thing. I did do the right thing." You know, and and I'm taking myself out of this because clearly I can't I, you know, if if he moves back with me, he's going to run away again. So I, I, what, I, my hands are going to be, I, I can't do this, you know? And I think that there's something, you know, uh, really interesting about that. I would love, you know, lo- I know that they continued uh, this character in what, like another short and maybe another film, right? Oh, um, they did five. There are five, five total films about Antoine's life. Um, wow. Yeah, the director, Jean-Pierre Lyot, he played him up until he was a middle-aged man. I, and the wow. other films never popped quite as much. They're more about like... Who does he love? Who is he sleeping with? How is his love life going? You know, there's a woman that he's in love with for several of the films, and then that doesn't work out at the end. But yeah, I, th- I think the other films didn't hit as hard because I don't know if they felt like they had as much of a societal statement as much as a like, what is it like to be a feckless man who is cheating on your wife when she's pregnant and writing novels about how you love too many women to ever settle down? Yeah, there's something really interesting about how the system here is being a little bit put on trial as well. Like when you see the scenes in school, he's being forced into a level of expressionism that, that it's unfair, right? Like the school is so, or at least it seems to me like strict. Uh, by the way, the look, the sets are blow my mind. That's this school room looks so shantytown 1920s. When I saw the movie it was 1959. I was like, wow, that's what French schools look like, or that's what a French prison cell looked like. I mean, that's like something like a body cage. But um, there is something about, you know, this school doesn't appreciate his imagination. The school doesn't really listen to him. Like no one listens to him. No one allows him to be who he is. So the only time he has his freedom is when he's not there. Like I love that scene where he steals the like the bottle of milk and just drinks it. It's such a kid like. He does all the things that a kid would do, like when you threaten to run away and do all these things. Like, um, But it is because no one's acknowledging who he is. He is just part of a system. And if that's a family system, if that's a school system, if that's the legal system, you just have to abide. Like it's not, it doesn't 
take into account any individuality. And I think that's the thing that is kind of, uh, I don't know, for me, it like just hits home. It's like, wow, like all these kids who don't have their voices are not heard because just because you're not subscribing to the system, they are deemed not worthy. Yeah. I mean, it's version of creative expression is you write down a poem that somebody else wrote. You know, you get to, right. you, you have copy to copy it. what somebody else did and you're judged on your handwriting, you know, not, not your own creative thought. But yet when he does copy or, I mean, what do you think about that moment when he, like, do you think it's an homage or do you think it's plagiarism when he is, uh, when he is told to do, uh, to write about something that happened to him and he uses, uh, you know, the end of that Balzac, uh, story about the grandfather is that in my mind, I read that scene as him. Like when I was a kid, I had to write a creative story and I wrote something that, that was exactly like back to the future because I love that movie. Right. And I was like, Oh, I want to live in that world too. And I'm a kid. I don't know the difference between, Oh, that's, that's not what you do. Like in fifth grade, I'm like, I just want to have a time machine and go back. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm embracing the thing that I enjoy. Right. You just want to do the 50 shades of gray version. (laughs) But I mean, I think there is a, there's a, there's a part of that. I watch my, my kids right now, like with star Wars or my older kid, like, he just wants to play Luke. He wants to be in that world. It's I'm not like, well, hey, hold on. You must uh, create your own characters and your own stories. Like He is looking for ways and wants to question things and embrace that story. And in a weird way, it's like, oh, by not even a, allowing him or even seeing the fact that he read this thing that's seemingly past where he is, he's being penalized for it, right? Because it's not like, you know, it's like, I don't know. There's something about that. Like, I think in his mind, he wasn't trying to cheat on the assignment. I think he was so inspired by the work that he was trying to recreate it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he is cheating. I, maybe I'm giving him too much uh, too much leeway. But I, I just felt like it was more um, fanboying, uh, which is, you know, a silly term to use in this film. But I think he's fanboying in that moment, not cheating on a test. Yeah, I mean, I think he's, I mean, he is, I think, motivated by his mom's promise that if he gets a high grade, he can get, you know, a thousand francs, but I don't think he necessarily sees a distinction between plagiarism and copying and homage and inspiration. I mean, when your whole school curriculum is write this poem down, like really, where is that line? Like when he gets in trouble, it almost feels like he's hearing what plagiarism is for the first time. You know, not like, right. he's, no, he's like, this is great. I want to do something great. Not like, oh, this guy will know what I did and it's in trouble and I can get caught. Like, it seems like such a naive mistake that he made that he doesn't seem to know it's wrong until yeah. he's screamed at. His outrage, I think, in that scene is is completely legitimate. Even if from the distance we could be like, well, you did plagiarize, son. You did. His his complete belief that this is not a fair crime and our belief, you know, from the outside that like, shouldn't you see that kid and be like, hey, you're interested in this? Here's a great book you don't do this line and I'm not going to give you credit for this assignment, but like, I'm going to draw out of you what I can see instead of right. you're a dirty, dirty thief. But that's the whole film. It's like you plagiarized, you get penalized, you steal this typewriter, you're trying to bring it back. And I know it's still stealing, but the, the penalty for that stealing of the typewriter is incredibly harsh. Right. I mean, it's like he goes to some sort of, juvenile delinquency center, you know, like, like it, it, like a reform school to a certain degree for this one act. It seems like the punishments are so much worse than the crime. Well, yeah. I mean, 
when you think about how everything in this film escalates, like he gets in trouble because somebody put a nude calendar on his desk, you know, and he was like, great, it's a nude calendar. He wasn't like, oh, my eyes, I'm such an innocent. He was like, nude calendar. And then he takes the blame for a thing that had been passed through all of the desks. And because he takes the blame for that, he misses out on recess and then he's forced to clean the board and he misses and he's given extra homework and then he can't do the extra homework because like his mother comes home and is like, go get the flower. And then he has to turn the light off. It's the same thing that we saw uh, happening um, in Stand and Deliver. You know, your household affects your ability to do your homework. And then because he doesn't do the homework, then he skips school the next day. And then he lies and says that his mother died. And then everything just keeps getting worse and worse. And it all starts from him just taking the fall for somebody else's calendar. And his entire life gets derailed. Because you know that when he runs away from this military school, they're going to catch him and he will wind up as beaten as the boys that we've already seen. You know, the boy who already got beaten up and returned home a hero, but is locked in a cell. What do you think that last scene is? I mean, it's, you know, I, from again, this is my first time seeing this film and my research before we wanted to sit down and talk. You know, I think that that frame, that last scene is... One of the greats, right? Like one of those scenes that, you know, people talk about. And when I saw it, I felt like the turn to camera is interesting, right? Because he looks right down the barrel and it freezes. It kind of abruptly, there was a part of me that also saw him making eye, like contact with someone trying to get him, like someone from that school, like we got you. Like, it just feels like, like he's free until he's found. And I feel like that moment that the camera and he connect eyes, like he's that freedom again is lost and pulled away, but we got to enjoy him for that run. I don't know. There, there was something about, I don't know why I felt that in that moment when he looked at the camera, like I was like, Oh, he's caught now. And that's the last moment of freedom that he's going to have for a long period of time. And we don't, you know, there, there was something about that. It was like, it was beautiful. And then also sad but that's at least the way I kind of read the end. I don't know. what. How do you read the end? I don't know. I mean, let's listen to some of that music to get kind of into the yeah. spell. You know, because I love how this ending builds from the naturalism where you only hear the sound effects and his feet. I mean, it's the longest like pair of tracking shots that we get here. And then it builds and you finally get the score and then he makes it to the beach and the camera pulls back and you have this really lovely framing of him where he's alone, just in desolation. You know, it makes him look so alone in this world to be on this empty beach with no other people. There he is in all black, you know, really popping against these pale colors. And then, yeah, when he turns around and looks at the camera, I mean, to me, it feels like aggressive and modern. You know, a lot of people, when they saw the shot, were like, whoa, this freeze frame ending was not a thing, you know, um, when this film came out. And then it became this like startling way of breaking that wall you know, that, you, I mean, that we wound up seeing in so many of our American new wave films. I can't tell you how much I thought of Taxi Driver with this movie on some level, too. Like not like there were moments like that last moment when. Bickle looks in the mirror and you see him eye to eye. Like, I definitely remembered that there. I also feel like Bickle is a version of this character, you know, spun out in a different way. You know, like, 
how do you get to that point, you know, and, and the military school. And then, you know, like, I don't know, there's something about it that I did see some, some shared commonality with those two films, uh, yeah. but you know, that resentment, that kind of, that, that grievance that like, I just want to be free, but also, and also I like think- going to the movies. And I was like, I just saw, I saw this boy as the perverted, the, if going on this path and still being told you're nothing, you're garbage, you're this, that person could warp themselves into Travis Bickle, you know, like in some way. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think he could. I mean, he works himself into Trent Reznor. There's a Nine Inch Nails video that absolutely rips off the entire ending of The 400 Blows, and you have Trent Reznor staring at the camera. I mean, really, any time a film has a scene where the character stares at the camera or there's a freeze frame, they usually say it's influenced by The 400 Blows. I mean, that includes, like, Moonlight. That includes Butch Cassidy, of course. And to me, when you see it happen here in this film for the first time, in a film that has not used the, the direct-to-camera any other way before... It feels like a challenge is how I see it. Like you've watched my life. Like now what are you going to do about it? What yes, are you going to do about the kids like me? Like I let you watch me. Yes. It's a confrontational fuck you. Now get active. Like there is like, I, I definitely see that too. And, you know, I've been so deep. Uh, I know I've talked about this already, but like so deep in like um, this social justice in education agenda right now uh, in the public school that my kid goes to and just really wrapping my head around all these things. And and the one thing I was kind of confounded by, and I don't know if I already talked about this, but I'll say it one more time. It was amazing for me to watch as we have been developing this program with the school, how parents drop out when they feel like it doesn't necessarily benefit their kid. It's, oh. too, you know, it's like, it's, well, I don't need that. So I don't need to be involved in that, right? Like so quickly people drop out when they don't see the direct uh, reward to the risk, right? It's like, and this movie, what you just described before about how his home life affects his work, affects his character, affects him essentially going to jail. Um, you know, it, it's such a microcosm of that. Like this idea of like, we we need to protect all kids. We need to be looking out and making sure that we're, you know, that we're giving everybody the same opportunities, like, you know, whether it is in Stand and Deliver with, you know, having a lamp or being able to work after class. Like there, there is this theme that I'm seeing that is really resonating to me, but I also understand how so many people get uh, uninvolved in it because it doesn't seem to affect them, right? Like they think, oh, well, just that's okay. They have this, so they're going to get that. But it's what you just described before I'm sorry to get on this long tangent about this, but this idea that like, it's just not one thing because one thing leads to the next leads to the next. And what you described, I think is very common for a lot of kids uh, in this world going to school, like they can get behind so quickly and then they're just labeled as these delinquencies, troublemakers, the non-educated can't get a diploma, but it's because no one was there to catch that fall. No one was there to listen to them. The parents are too busy. Everyone's too busy. They're just passing a note that says, this person's trouble. Great. Stamp it. This person's trouble. And then all of a sudden you are trouble. And I think that's why that scene where he's, you know, put in this paddy wagon and being driven out of the city, you know, this film opens up with our tour of Paris and this film loves Paris. I mean, the idea that the Eiffel Tower is just always there somehow in the center of the frame until it gets closer and closer and closer. This film is such a love letter to the ninth Aragonese Bont, which is where Truffaut grew up. And to see him 
in the van being taken away from all of this, like staring out through the bars and sobbing, you feel that sense of you are ripping this kid away because you're only concerned about the effects of the problem, you know, the consequences, the way in which this kid acts out. You're punishing the consequences and you're never fixing the source. You know, nobody ever yeah. really gets to the source of why he's no. been making any of these mistakes. Because adults don't have time, right? On some level, that's what this movie is saying. Like Adults have, don't have time to really connect with kids and understand what is going on with kids. And it, it's a beautiful perspective of a child. Not like This movie feels, and I think this is what we were saying in the beginning, it feels like it has a 12-year-old's point of view. And I think that's the incredibly hard thing to do in film. Because as you get older, you your point of view changes and you want to create in a different way. But to keep that point of view alive, like no adults care uh, or, you know, or care to care is interesting. I also thought of that scene when he was in the paddy wagon of Pinocchio, like this idea of this boy who, you know, this doll who wants to be a real boy. And here it's a boy who wants to be an adult. And then he gets that wish, you know, gets to go to Pleasure Island or whatever, you know, Pinocchio goes to it. I think it's Pleasure Island. And then is surrounded by, okay, you, you're you reckless. You can run around. You can have fun. You can do all this sort of stuff. And how quickly that lifestyle traps them. And then you lose that innocence. And then you're trapped by this, you know, this other character. Like, there was something, I thought there was a real similarity between Pinocchio and this as well. Uh, you know, boy going out into the real world for the first time, thinking he knows what is right. No one's there to help him. And then he gets caught, you know, in this other other thing and, and luckily is saved. But uh, but that moment in the paddy wagon really just reminded me of Pinocchio as Pinocchio was staring out of the bars and especially the Disney movie version of it. Well, yeah, because I mean, what is he going to learn at that reform school except tips like don't steal typewriters? They have serial numbers like do this better next time. But yeah, I mean, speaking of the way that Truffaut just nails kids, I mean, it's no wonder to me that this film is like a huge touchstone for Steven Spielberg. You know, that Steven Spielberg is like, ah, that is how it's done. To the fact that like when Spielberg made Close Encounters, he cast Truffaut as one of the scientists. I mean, this is him talking he really about is. it. He loves movies more than anybody I've ever met in my life. You can take all this new Hollywood bullshit and get all of us guys sitting in a room together and he puts us away. He knows more about movies than any of us ever will. Did he, did he try to be influential in any way at in terms of how you handled no, scenes? No, he didn't. He didn't. He, he made suggestions occasionally. And I wanted him to make more, but he would just make them when he was felt comfortable about making them. One day he said, ah, Stephen, what? and he'd bring me over and he'd show me a bunch of extras when the camera was not on them, what they were doing, picking their noses, scratching their rear ends. He said, ah, well, you, you must capture this. I said, Francois, I can't capture somebody picking their nose <laughs> while this... You know, this, uh, <laughs> this renaissance fair is approaching from out of the Northwest. Come on, you know? And uh, because Truffaut has, has this very devilish sense of humor, that he will pick things out in the background and, and fasten on them and just not leave it. He'll, he, with binoculars, spend hours watching the extras 100 feet away. <laughs> you know, he loves that. He loves that. I mean, Truffaut, by the way, if you're racking your mind, remember who he was. He is the scientist who, in this film, literally cracks the code, plays the code of the aliens. And I love that because there's something lovely in this idea that 
Truffaut is the guy who tries to crack the code of what makes Hitchcock work. Then he puts that in his films, you know, through his own interpretation. And then he gets picked up by our new wave. And so he becomes almost this fulcrum point between, you know, our Hitchcock to our Spielberg. You know, he, he kind of classes it up, roughs it up around the edges a little bit more, and then allows us to reinterpret him. I love that Spielberg is talking about how Truffaut wants to capture people being people. Yeah, I mean, I think my favorite moment of that is you almost get a wall of that Spielberg shot when they go to the puppet show. And Truffaut's just watching the faces of these children react to a puppet show where the puppets are beating each other on the head and doing the whole aggro puppet thing. And I mean, let's listen to it first, then keep talking about it. I mean, those reactions, that mix of screaming and laughing and awe, I mean, to me, that that whole sequence is almost a statement about a few things. Like, one, the power of entertainment. You know, you see these kids feel emotions. It feels like for the first time. They're feeling new emotions for the very first time because of this puppet show. That this Well, didn't like fear- Punch and Judy feel like taboo to you? Like when you were a kid, like I, I, yeah. at least I did, like I'm hitting you on the head. I, there's like violence and laughter and and there is like sex underneath the undercurrent of it on some level. Like they're kissing yeah, and they're fighting. And, yeah, there is something about that. I, I thought that sequence was so... Yeah, so powerful. And also, you're right, like, this is the first time they're they're seeing it. Like, this whole movie is about how entertainment brings you joy. I mean, whether that's, like, an arcade, a Gravitron, a Punch and Judy show, actual movies, it, like, it's the one thing. I mean, this is, a, this is a movie about the joy of cinema to many, in many respects. I'm sure a smarter person has said that. Uh, but that, it is the joy of entertainment, like, what that brings, how that calms a life, you know, uh, you know, that is in turmoil or trouble. Yeah. I mean, and the power of it. I mean, cause some of these kids don't even look like they're having joy exactly, but it is about like how the things we show kids make an impression on them. You know, like if you have your kid watch seeds of violence, are they going to grow up to be violent? If you have them watch like punch and Judy, you know, are they going to grow up thinking that that's what marriage is? There's a little bit of what are we showing our kids as role models of how the world is to go. And it's interesting. You know, we talked before in one of our live shows at the Draft House about um, about the Beatles movie, about right. Hard Day's Night. And in Hard Day's Night, I feel like they do an homage to this scene. You know, you're watching the girls in the audience in black and white freaking out in the face of the Beatles. And this is the closest parallel I've, I've seen to that on cinema. You know, these two films kind of talking to each other about like, Look at these people take on this thing, this entertainment. Just going back to Spielberg to put a fine cap on it. I think what Spielberg does that Truffaut does and really well is articulate how a 12-year-old feels without putting it through the lens of an adult interpreting how a 12-year-old feels, if that makes sense. Like, you know, the the way the characters act in E.T., and I'm thinking about E.T. a lot because, you know, I think that both of these films deal with paternity. Like, that's an issue. Like, who? where's the father? Who's the father? The kids are acting out in that movie, and they're not able to label that they want a father. But E.T. is also serving as a father figure. It's bringing them together. They're rallying as a family 
around this this hole that they have. And I don't think any kid could articulate that. And I think a bad version of this movie are kids being too smart and being able to analyze themselves instead of just react and and be natural in the moment. So that punch and Judy thing kind of ties into ET kind of ties into this idea of like, right as the kid, not, uh, as an adult trying to write a kid, if that makes sense, but that's, you know, all kind of mixed together. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, Truffaut wasn't making this with us in mind, you know, with like an American audience in mind, but how significant is it that the one line in this that is in English is about exactly that? You know, we're back in this classroom. And by the way, the classroom scenes, um, the co-writer, Marcel Moussi, was a classroom teacher. Like he was a real, real teacher. So he was able to bring that verite to these classroom scenes. Here we have a teacher trying to get his student to say something in English. And it is about fatherhood. Dernière question. Encore plus simple. Where is the father? The father? No. The father. Father. And also, I think so much of what makes this feel real is how Truffaut tried to edit this as little as possible. You know, there's so many long shots in the classroom. You know, you're going up and down the aisles, going around and back. He believed that the longer you went without making an edit, the more people would believe that they were watching a real story, you know, a real film. That edits, he considered them phony in a way, which is something he learned from Andre Bazan. And Andre Bazan winds up dying the day that he starts to shoot this film. You know, his great mentor, like his own father figure who had meant so much to him. That's why the film is dedicated to Bazan for being the person who really was his shaper who really would have is why this film exists. Wow. The not cutting a lot is such a great way to get into a character's mindset. I think, you know, when you shoot comedy, you want coverage, but you also want to shoot it in the most organic way. So it feels alive. And I feel like, you know, um, you want to be able to pull in, but I think at the end of the day, you want, to feel like you're in the room. And when you see so many cuts, you lose that connection. And, and in this film, you really live in, in that, in the faces, in these moments. Yeah. That's really interesting. I didn't really realize how he used those long cuts as much as until you just said it. Yeah. I feel like we keep coming up on this. You know, when, when a filmmaker figures out what their limitations are and accepts it and works within it, when they don't have a ton of film, when they want that looser improvised field and they have to have it because they're working within their own limitations, you create something really special. You really do. And then it's hard, I think, to keep doing that again, to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. But when it works, it works so well. I mean, the idea that this film comes out in 1959, wins Best Director at Cannes, of course, then is actually nominated for Best Original Screenplay here in America. You know, it's one of the rare wow. films in a foreign language to get nominated for Best Original Screenplay. And that's happening while Ben-Hur is winning all the Oscars. I mean, what a contradiction of two different types of cinema. You know, how fresh this must have felt in comparison. Yeah, absolutely. I also feel like in this movie, you get the model for Peter Bogdanovich's whole career. You know, you oh, start as 100%, a critic, you yes, get really yes. smart, then you make a film about the youth. I mean, it's exactly it. He basically was like, I see you, I raise you. And then could you argue that Roger Ebert is kind of the failed version of that? 
also a critic who then goes to make a movie does only makes one uh which i've not seen uh is that movie good amy i mean it, have you beyond seen the movie? valley of the dolls yes the movie that he wrote that that was then directed by russ mayer is that movie good no that movie is not good that movie is tremendous that movie is one Whoa. of my favorite movies of all time then why I didn't have... he continue making movies <laughs> because he said everything he needed to say okay Okay, well, maybe we can visit that on the show, too. Uh, oh, I've don't never... threaten me with a good time. All right. Oh, All my right. God. Strawberry alarm clock, giant boobs. I This movie's amazing. <laughs> you know, Amy, you saying strawberry alarm clock just triggered something for me. Thinking about my interpretation of this film was very different because I think the, the way I learned about this film was through a children's program, and it gave me a very warped perspective of it. Um, I don't know if you ever saw um, this Seen on Sesame Street. Tonight, we proud to present exciting, thrilling first episode of very important and breezy French drama, The 400 Blows. So, without further ado, The 400 Blows with subtitles. Happy Okay, blow out the candles. Here I go. Yeah. <gasps> one, 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 blow. one blow. But they did not all go out. Let me try it again. Okay. Here okay. we go. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, but they did not go all out. Here we go again. <gasps> and you get the idea. <laughs> you get the idea of Ford I've never seen that. Uh, pretty great uh, Sesame Street, always at the cutting edge. Was it actually even subtitled? <laughs> no, it was not. They... <laughs> I can't imagine that anyone looked at this film with a negative reaction, but I'm sure you might have found one. I mean, but I, I don't even know what the what the dig would be because it feels like this is the film that brings in French New Wave. It's a film that is successful in America, but what... Were there any digs on this movie? No, everybody basically sat down and said, yes, we agree that this obnoxious guy, the grave digger of French cinema, made a really great film. Okay, fine. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. But there were digs on Truffaut himself. Let me start actually, though, with some of Truffaut's own negative reviews that he wrote, the stuff that got him banned from Cannes in 1958. He called the French cinema that he hated Le cinéma de papa, you know, talking about fathers, you know, your dad's movies. Oh, God. And when he got banned from Cannes, it was because he was writing things like that Cannes, unless it made radical changes, it was doomed. And he said the films of tomorrow are going to be made by adventurers. You know, young filmmakers will express themselves in the first person. They will tell us about their experience. The films of tomorrow will not be made by the functionaries of the camera, but by artists who see filmmaking as an amazing, exciting adventure. And that was the challenge he laid down for everybody, including himself. And so when he succeeds, you know, Godard, another person who we absolutely have to start, have to talk about in this season, they're really good friends at this point. They have a falling out later, but he backs him up. And he says, you know, after this film wins at Cannes, Godard says, film auteurs, thanks to us, have finally entered the history of art. But you whom we attack have automatically benefited from this success. And we attack you for your betrayal because we have opened your eyes and you continue to keep them closed. Each time we see your films, we find them so bad, so far aesthetically and morally from what we had hoped that we are almost ashamed of our love for the cinema. 
We cannot forgive you for never having filmed girls as we love them, boys as we see them every day, parents as we despise or admire them, children as they astonish us or leave us indifferent. In other words, things as they are. Today, victory is ours. Although we have won a battle, the war is not yet over. Wow. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? I almost wish we were this heated in the broad strokes of cinema today. But then, of course, Truffaut, you know, winds up becoming really successful, making a ton more films. And then he becomes the subject of the same kind of eye rolling. You know, another critic was a friend of his said when Truffaut was later on his career, you know what? I liked the tough, uncompromising Truffaut. I liked him pecking on the skull of the pompous, old-fashioned film farts. I liked when he was excommunicated by the Cannes establishment. Now I'm mad at him for going to Cannes. He let himself be dressed in a tuxedo. He let himself be swallowed by the big buttering up factory, tossed in granulated sugar, tamed and sweetened. What will be left of the former Truffaut? I think that that's only fair to say of someone who holds film to such a high standard. I I think it's impossible to be in the system and be out of the system at the same time. Yes, you can retain an authority, you can retain elements, but it does change you. Like, it just does change you. Like, if you can call up any actor you want, if you can get anything you want within reason, it does change you. Like, and it, and look, you have filmmakers like P.T. Anderson and, and Quentin Tarantino who are at the top of their game, making movies that people want to see. And yes, they still have to fight to get, um, you know, probably the budget they want or, you know, a studio or some element behind them. But at the end of the day, every actor that they want wants to work with them. Everything that they really wanted at their disposal. Money is probably always going to be a little bit of a battle. But when that happens, you do change. When you when the doors are open, you're less hungry. You like it is uh I think a fair a fair critique or a fair question to ask of somebody, you know, you change and hopefully you are changing, but you're bringing people in that you were, right? Like you're mentoring those voices, not just staying in the establishment. I think that's the trick. You know, I want to just talk to you also, obviously you're more well-versed than I am in film. You see so much, you know, we talked about Spielberg, how it affects Spielberg. We talked, you know, my theory that this is, you know, even a little bit of taxi driver where else are you seeing this? Is this like, I mean, to me, also Richard Linklater with Boyhood. And you're talking about this idea of capturing something, the reality of something. Um, you know, uh, there are these directors who I think are influenced. Who else do you see? Like, who else do you see this influence on? Well, gosh, uh, that- I mean, we're jumping back all the way to the very beginning of our first season. But remember that um, the script for Bonnie and Clyde, their dream director for this was Truffaut. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They really wanted to import him into start our American new wave. So, I mean, really, he's kind of the founder of all of it. If Bonnie and Clyde, I feel like, really kicks off ours here that we fell in love with. That's really interesting. Yeah, I I, um, I think now that I've seen it, I can't unsee that effect because it really is be- became part of this. This movie is a part of our language of film. I mean, from 1960 forward. It is. And I mean, I guess part of me is like, oh, it does turn into some of the movies I roll my eyes at. You know, they like I think we got endless amounts of boyhood coming of age films for a long time or like nostalgia of my childhood, blah, blah, blah. But this doesn't have that as much. You know, I feel like Truffaut, by not setting it in his childhood, you know, he's what, 12 years older than um, the actor that he has living here. He didn't set it in his own childhood because like he grew up during the war. 
you know, he was a war child. So he he says that his own childhood was even worse than this one. Like he grew up in a time of more hunger um, and more desperation and more, you know, his parents were broken in a lot of ways by the war. And Antoine has it slightly better. But so I think by setting it into the future and not making it so American graffiti-ish about the past, it has a freshness that I think the people who imitated him later don't necessarily have. You know, I think yeah. I might be the only person in the world who doesn't love Stand By Me. And 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 so I I admire the fact that he tried to make something about the kids of today instead of the kids of his generation. Which is interesting because I think, you know, at the end of this miniseries, we're gonna be talking about Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which you know, I think it breaks the tradition of American graffiti uh, of Last Picture Show and kind of is about the teens of now. And I think that that's something that, you know, obviously we really adopt now, whether it's a movie like Good Boys or um, or, you know, Superbad or, you know, like there there are these seminal comedies that are not the youth of yesteryear. I think that, you know, that's and that to me uh, is. It's kind of interesting. I think it actually by not date by keeping it present, you almost don't date it because it ages better than going in the past. I haven't thought that out totally, but I believe that that's to be true. <laughs> well, Paul, it is time for the big question. The big question of our se- of our second season, which is if we chose 400 blows to be one of our pilgrims blasted into space, what would the aliens make of it? Hmm, this is a really good question because I think this paints a very interesting picture. So far, we have three school pictures that are all showing the importance of supporting children. And I think this is the one that really shows what happens when children don't have the right supports in their lives. And in a way, I think it's important to show what can happen because I think a lot of times Hollywood films focus on if it wasn't for that one teacher, these kids' lives would be different. And this is the first time that we're seeing, no, 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 this is a a different track you can go on. Right. It's, it's almost like we're watching Stand and Deliver, except it's about Lou Diamond Phillips in middle school if he was never, ever given right. a teacher who cared yeah, about him. exactly. So I think for that reason alone, it's really interesting and what it says about how society doesn't listen to kids. Yeah, yeah. And I also think there's something in this film where, you know, the power of it. I mean, Truffaut, when he shot this film, he actually didn't even shoot it recording the sound. He knew that he didn't even have good sound uh, sound equipment. And so he did all the sound later on in post-production. He dubbed all of the voices later on. And I think because of that limitation, this film is also works in silent. Like if aliens don't speak English or French, I feel like they could absorb a lot of this film anyways through just taking in the images. I think it's so strong visually and so compelling narratively in what it shows you. Ooh, I, I, I think that. it would hold up. Yeah, I, I didn't think about it like that. I really love that idea. I mean, to me, I feel like an alien would be able to identify with it and I think would also be shocked at how small French apartments are. And maybe it would let the aliens know, like, if you want to get a more spacious apartment, you got to move to a different country. Although would aliens think we all lived in houses with stuffed horses? It was either like you're real crammed or you got a stuffed horse. <laughs> well, look, if like the aliens are from like Alf's background, they're being excited because all those cats are in that house, too. <laughs> they're like, oh, dinner. Dinner is ready. That is not funny. 
<laughs> uh, no, but I think this is a really interesting one. So far, an outlier in the sense of the children aren't saved here. And uh, as we go forward, I'm going to be curious to see how that also plays out. This is dark yet hopeful, um, real, and and true to an experience. And I think we have so far two films that are based in real stories that are, you know, I think very, uh, very grounded. And one's a little bit bigger, but also based in a true story. I mean, Mean Girls was based on a book that, uh, you know, that that talked about these power dynamics. So really, a lot of the films that we're talking about, even looking forward a little bit, uh, have their basis in reality, which is interesting. And, I didn't and, and realize how- that. Like, here we are thinking about the films that we thought were the best in this kind of genre, and they all actually turn out to be the ones based in reality. Yeah. Most of them, yeah. I like it. I like this trend, and maybe at the end of this, we'll have a, a, a bigger point of view about this. But I definitely know that, obviously, Fast Times has that. And I'm excited to see uh, about Cooley High and uh, Rebel Without a Cause, like where their backgrounds are as well. This is where I'm a little bit nervous about next week's episode, which is going to be Rebel Without a Cause, another movie I've never seen, um, which I'm excited to see. But uh, we were raising hell, man. We are. I'm raising hell. hell. Uh, But that movie also feels like uh, is that movie of the now? Is that movie of the present or is that movie of the past? I don't even know. Or is that movie only about James Dean? I mean, we'll have to see. Let's take a listen to the trailer to Rebel Without a Cause. You know what kind of drunken brawls those parties turn into. It's no place for kids. A minute ago, you said you didn't care if he drinks. He said a little drink. You're tearing me apart! What? You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! Stand up! All right, so I'm excited to talk about that. I'm excited to see that. Um, And this has been a pleasure, and I'm going to go seek out these other films. I want to see the continuation of this character. And I just will ask you one more question. Do we get to see the mother in any of these continuations or is she just gone? Is she out? Well, if you want to see the mother, you actually maybe already have because uh, oh, wow. Claire Moyer, who plays the mother, she shows up in Amelie. Oh, wow. Amelie? Yeah. Yes, She's I have. Suzanne, the owner of the cafe. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. All right. I but I mean, I'm saying, do we see the mother as the mother anymore in this boy's story, in Antoine's story? I don't remember. All right. I don't know. <laughs> All right, well, it'll be, a, it'll be a mystery for us to figure out. All right, we will see you next week for Rebel Without a Cause, uh, which is available uh, wherever you can stream movies. It's a, it's a very popular movie. Don't, don't worry about it. 